Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. On this episode, we're going to take a little different approach than usual. Instead of focusing on a particular diagnosis, we're going to talk about how to manage one of the most common symptoms in pediatrics, respiratory distress. If you take care of kids in any setting, you are absolutely 100% guaranteed to have to manage patients with trouble breathing on a pretty regular basis. The vast majority of the time, things get better with little or no intervention, but as always, you should know what steps to take if things keep going wrong. First, a run-through of normal breathing. Humans are negative pressure breathers. We literally suck air into our lungs. More scientifically, when the diaphragm pulls downward, it expands the chest cavity and creates a lower-than-atmospheric pressure. Air moves down that pressure gradient through the trachea to the bronchi, bronchioles, and all the smaller and smaller airways until it gets to the alveoli where gas exchange happens. The air in the alveoli has a high concentration of oxygen and a low concentration of carbon dioxide compared to the blood flowing through the capillaries, so diffusion pulls oxygen into the blood to be delivered to the rest of the body and carbon dioxide into the airways to be exhaled. When that system is running smoothly, there's also a lot of room for extra capacity. Think about the difference between how you breathe at rest and how you breathe when you're exercising or even after you take a flight of stairs. The primary driver is your body's need for more oxygen, and your respiratory system is great at picking up the slack. A 2010 study in the journal Clinical Nutrition found that on average, a group of healthy women between 65 and 79 years old could increase their oxygen consumption by 500% during exercise. I know elderly women are pretty far from pediatrics, but they're great for illustrating the point that most people have a lot of reserve capacity. You wouldn't have been as impressed if I'd thrown out some data about Olympic athletes. We expect crazy stuff from them. But little old ladies, that's impressive. How do we get that extra boost? There are a few ways. Your airways dilate, which drops the resistance and lets air flow more freely and quickly. Respiratory rate goes up too. Taking more breaths per minute is going to increase the rate of gas exchange. The diaphragm is still the main muscle involved, but you also start recruiting accessory muscles like the intercostals, sternocleidomastoid, and scalenes to open up the chest even more. That means that along with the faster respiratory rate, you're also going to breathe more deeply, pulling in more air with every breath. I know I always apologize when I include math, but this one's easy. More volume per breath times more breaths per minute equals more oxygen for the body. All that extra air isn't just expanding the same alveoli either you can also start opening up areas of the lung that haven't been working quite as much as they could be. The extra oxygen is going to trigger the pulmonary capillaries to dilate, bringing more blood through for gas exchange with all that extra air you're cycling. All that working together is how those little old ladies we talked about, and the rest of us, can ramp up respiratory capacity to handle increased demands. Knowing how the respiratory system is supposed to function is important if you want to be able to understand what's happening when it goes wrong. At the most basic level, respiratory distress comes down to the body having to push its respiratory system closer and closer to full capacity just to keep the basic functions running. You already know there are a lot of conditions that lead to respiratory distress. Increased airway resistance and asthma, decreased diffusion from consolidated lobes and pneumonia, and just about everything in cystic fibrosis, to name a few. But we'll worry about treating underlying causes in other episodes. For this episode, the focus is on more acute management. But first, we have to recognize a distressed patient. Unless you're talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome, respiratory distress doesn't have a single concrete definition. It's really just a term to describe a patient who's having trouble breathing. So what you need to watch for are all the clinical signs and symptoms. 
Tachypnea is probably one of the first things you'll see or hear about from the nurse who's paging you. The cutoff points vary by age, but in general, you should always be worried about a respiratory rate over 60 per minute in a baby 2 months old or less, 50 breaths a minute from 2 to 12 months, 40 breaths a minute from 1 to 5 years old, and over 20 in kids older than 5. Remember, these are just guidelines. You shouldn't ignore a respiratory rate of 30 in a 4-year-old whose birthday is in 3 weeks just because the textbook said it was okay. Once you're looking at the patient, everything you see can tell you something about how much distress he's in and what's going on. Positioning is important. If he's leaning forward with his hands on his knees, it's called tripoding, which helps engage the accessory muscles in the neck to pull in more air. Using those neck muscles, especially in younger infants who don't have great head control yet, is what causes head bobbing, a sign of more severe respiratory distress. You might also see nasal flaring, especially in infants. Flaring the nostrils increases the upper airway diameter, which drops resistance and helps air flow more freely. If your patient can talk, see how much he can say before needing to take a breath. Someone who's able to speak to you in full sentences is a lot less concerning than someone who can only get out two or three words before feeling out of breath. The last big visual sign of respiratory distress, and the one you'll definitely see in pediatrics, is retractions. When a patient has retractions, the skin around their chest pulls in, or retracts, when she tries to get her breath in. The reason why goes back to using negative pressure to breathe. Normally, when the diaphragm and other inspiratory muscles expand the chest, the negative pressure pulls air in through the mouth and nose to fill the space. But if the airway resistance is too high, air can't come in as quickly, and you see the skin being pulled in by that negative pressure in the chest. I've heard some people say that the location of the retractions can help localize where the airway problem is, suprasternal and supraclavicular retractions coming from upper airways, subcostal and substernal from lower airways, but I'm not convinced it's true. For now, just know that retractions are another sign of respiratory distress. When you're finally done looking at your patient, which probably only takes about 30 seconds, start listening. Some sounds you can hear as soon as you walk in the room, while others you'll need to work a little harder to pick up, but they can all help you figure out what's causing your patient's distress. Starting with some of the more obvious breath sounds, stertor is a snoring kind of inspiratory sound that localizes to the upper airway and is usually caused by nasopharyngeal obstruction, which in kids is often because of the tonsils and adenoids. Grunting is another sound you pick up pretty quickly and happens when the patient closes the glottis suddenly during expiration. The idea is to keep a higher pressure in the lungs to keep alveoli and other small airways from collapsing. It's most common in infants, but you can see it in almost any age group. Wheezing and Strider are in the middle in terms of how hard they are to pick up on exam. Strider usually doesn't take a stethoscope, and wheezing might not if it's bad enough. They're both high-pitched, they're both caused by turbulent flow through the airways, and they can both be inspiratory or expiratory, so they can be a little hard to tell apart, which is why we're talking about them together here. Strider is caused by obstruction in the larger airways, the pharynx, glottis, subglottis, trachea, or lower bronchi. Because it only involves the main lines, it's called a monophonic sound, more like a whistle. Inspiratory strider means the obstruction is above the glottis, but it can be an expiratory sound if the obstruction is in the lower airways, or even biphasic, noisy with both inspiration and expiration, if it's at the level of the glottis. The reason has to do with the pressure changes that happen when you breathe. When you inhale, the negative thoracic pressure pulls open the lower airways, but it causes the soft tissues above the glottis to collapse inward. 
Usually that's not an issue, but if there's swelling or a foreign body that's already narrowing the airway, it causes stridor. The opposite is true for expiratory stridor. Exhaling increases the intrathoracic pressure and compresses the lower airways. Again, it's not going to be noisy unless there's obstruction on top of the normal opening and closing of airways. When the strider is biphasic, it usually means there's a fixed obstruction that isn't affected by changes in pressure. Wheezing is caused by obstruction in the lower airways, and because it comes from airways of all different sizes, it's a polyphonic sound. Wheezing is typically expiratory because of the same mechanism that creates expiratory strider. Increased intrathoracic pressure during expiration, compressing the airways. Smaller airways close enough to make noise earlier than larger ones, which is why the sound varies some during the course of expiration. If the airway obstruction is severe enough, you can have biphasic wheezing, but it's almost never exclusively inspiratory. The last two sounds to mention, rails and ronchi, you're going to need a stethoscope for. Rails, which it took me way too long to realize are the same thing as crackles, are clicking, bubbling sounds during inspiration. They're caused by small airways popping open and are associated with pneumonia, pulmonary edema, pulmonary fibrosis, and other conditions you would associate with making it harder for the alveoli to open. You can add a lot more adjectives when you're describing rails. Coarse, fine, early, late, high or low pitched, but we're just going for the basics here. Finally, ronchi are the coarse breath sounds you see described in a lot of notes. They sound sort of like a combination of wheezing and snoring that you can hear during both inspiration and expiration, and are caused by inflammation and secretions in the airways. As you can imagine, there are a lot of things that cause the airways to produce extra secretions, which is why you can hear ronchi in everything from a cold to pneumonia to cystic fibrosis. So what can you do when your patient's in distress? It's important to intervene sooner than later because all the respiratory muscles are skeletal muscle, and that means they can fatigue and fail. We'll work our way from least to most invasive support, which is also probably a good general rule for when you're actually doing this for a patient. Giving a little extra oxygen can go a long way, whether it's by nasal cannula or oxygen mask. Atmospheric air is 21% oxygen, but extra oxygen flow can increase that percentage. As a general rule, you get a 3-4% to 4 boost for every liter per minute of flow. So 1 liter is around 24%, 3 liters is 32%, and so on. With a simple nasal cannula, you can only get up to around 6 liters per minute of flow before you have to switch to a mask. Masks can get a little higher flow, especially non-rebreather masks, which can get you up to 100% oxygen. The main way oxygen helps is by giving an extra push for diffusion. The higher the concentration of oxygen in the alveoli, the stronger the drive to diffuse into the blood. It's not much, but if hypoxia is the main reason your patient is having trouble, it might be enough to get you over the hump while you work on the underlying cause. The next step up is a high-flow nasal cannula, or, depending on where you are, heated humidified oxygen. Just like the name says, a high-flow nasal cannula is a nasal cannula that allows for a higher flow rate. You get all the benefits of standard nasal cannula, plus a little extra. The high flow rate tends to open the upper airways by giving just a little bit of positive pressure. If the patient opens his mouth, most of that pressure gets released, but it still makes breathing just a little easier. A high flow cannula also oxygenates the dead space, and the warm, humidified air has better conduction through the airways and better gas exchange than the standard cannula provides. The problem with high flow is that it might not work for anyone older than two. 
High-flow therapy was developed as an alternative for CPAP and intubation in neonates, and since then it's become common treatment for bronchiolitis. We won't get into details here. There's a whole episode on bronchiolitis from a few months back, other than to say that neonates and patients with bronchiolitis are the two main groups high-flow is used for. Beyond that, there isn't much evidence for using high-flow in other populations. A 2014 Cochrane Review did a database search that reached from the 1950s through April 2013, 60 years of publications, looking for randomized controlled trials and, in their words, quasi-randomized trials that compared high-flow with other non-invasive therapy for children from 4 weeks through 16 years old. In the end, they sifted through 922 records and found... nothing. No studies match their inclusion criteria. It's not that high-flow is necessarily bad for other patients, it's just that there isn't any evidence to say either way. It probably wouldn't hurt to try, but don't press on if it doesn't seem like it's working. The next step up from high-flow nasal cannula is giving positive airway pressure. Positive pressure keeps the airways open. These machines come with masks that give a full seal around the mouth and nose to keep the pressure from being released, and helps overcome airway resistance, prevents alveoli from collapsing, and increases oxygenation. The simple form is continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP. CPAP delivers the same pressure whether the patient is breathing in or out, and there's a good chance you know at least one person who uses CPAP every night to help with snoring. BiPAP, bi-level positive airway pressure, is a little more involved and is pretty much the last step before a patient is intubated. Bi-level pressure means that BiPAP gives two different pressures, a higher pressure during inspiration to help air flow in, and a lower pressure during expiration to work like CPAP, and you can use it in two different ways. The more common way you see BiPAP used is for breathing assistance. The machine is set up to detect the drop in pressure caused by the patient breathing in. Remember, we breathe by creating negative pressure, and then delivering that higher inspiratory pressure to help take a more effective breath. The patient is still in control of his own respiratory rate. We're just there to help make things easier with the BiPAP. For patients who need even more help, you can have the BiPAP give a set number of breaths per minute, giving that push at regular intervals, and essentially use it as a ventilator. A short run of non-invasive ventilation can sometimes be enough to get your patient back on track, but it's not a long-term solution, and if you start using BiPAP to ventilate, you should be thinking hard about intubation and a trip to the ICU. In pediatrics, you usually think about CPAP or BiPAP for patients who are weaning off of a ventilator or are showing signs of respiratory muscle fatigue. Sleep apnea is probably the most common indication overall, but isn't as big of an issue in kids. There are a few contraindications to keep in mind. You should absolutely avoid CPAP and BiPAP in unstable patients or patients in respiratory arrest, patients who can't protect their airway, and patients with facial abnormalities or recent facial or gastric surgeries. The patient has to be able to protect his airway because if he's prone to aspiration, pushing air into his mouth is only going to make it worse. Patients with abnormal facial anatomy aren't going to have the right fit for the mask, and people with recent surgeries are at risk for having pressure-related injuries to areas that are still healing. For unstable or arresting patients, you should skip BiPAP and go straight to intubation. Intubation and ventilation is the highest level of respiratory support we can give. At that point, we more or less say the patient can't breathe for himself, so we're going to take over for a little while. The endotracheal tube bypasses the larynx and epiglottis, making an unobstructed path to the lungs, and the ventilator delivers breaths for the patient. 
Ventilator management is a topic we could talk about for at least an episode or two, but we're not going to do it here. It's good to know the next time you're in the ICU, but it's beyond what you need to know for general peds boards. If you can identify who needs to be intubated, the people who can't protect their airway, respiratory arrest, or impending failure, it should get you through the test. You are guaranteed to have to deal with respiratory distress in pediatrics, and this episode should help you decide what to do to help your next patient. Retractions, posturing, and tachypnea are the most visible signs, while breath sounds like wheezing, ronchi, and rails can give you more information about what's going on. It's good to take a stepwise approach to support, from oxygen to high flow to positive pressure to intubation, but be sure to assess your patient well enough to decide where along the progression to start. Remember, all of this is supportive care for respiratory distress. It will help get your patient through, but you still have to diagnose and treat the underlying problem. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. You can send any comments or suggestions to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm always open for feedback. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pedsoup.